Well, it's good to see you all, and I hope uh, you're able to stay out of the sun. I, I took off on a, a walk the other day, uh, and uh, when I got to my destination, I took my phone out and looked at the time. It was 10 o'clock, and so by the time I got back, it was about 11.20, and it was uh, 98 degrees or something like that. So I, uh, I lost about 20 pounds. I think if I keep after it, I can... It's brutally hot, so be careful. You know, most people would agree, I think all all human beings would agree that we're uh, on some kind of a pilgrimage. Uh, Even if you don't believe in God or have no religious beliefs, if you were just an atheist and said, I don't believe in God, uh, they would would still acknowledge, even somebody that has no religious beliefs would acknowledge that they're on a journey At the very least, from life to death. You start your life, you go forward, and at some point you're going to die. What happened before that or after that is uh, uh, speculative for people that don't have a a uh, faith-based religion or belief system. And so everyone believes that we're on a pilgrimage. And that's what this section of the book of Psalms is all about. It's a little mini hymnal from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 and the scribes and the uh, rabbis compiled this at some point in the past we don't really know exactly when gathering psalms that were songs of ascent songs that the people used as they made their way to the festivals in Jerusalem three times a year sometimes more often for different things but at least three times a year And these were the songs that they used. They would have been sung. They would have been chanted. Psalm 120 begins with this pilgrim far from the presence of God, far from home, off in Meshach and Kedar, these uh, areas of of the Middle East there that were far to the north, Meshach and Kedar, far to the south out in the desert wilderness. And he hates the fact that he's there, that he's in this, this place of, uh, where God's presence is absent. Because God was present most fully in Jerusalem in the temple. We know he's everywhere and that he's omnipresent, but that was their belief that God was specially present in Jerusalem. And so all of the Psalms build up to Psalm 134 when it's a burst of joy and the, the pilgrim finds himself in Jerusalem, in the temple, rejoicing in the immediate presence of God. It's really quite remarkable. And today we're going to read Psalm 126, and it's in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, you can turn to that and uh, continue this journey through the Pilgrim Psalms, these are great for summer. There's a good time to kind of, they're all short, only a few verses. Time to kind of reorient your mind in thinking about your own journey, the journey that you are making through your life. What, what does it mean? Is there anything after, after that journey? Even the most skeptical person asks that question. So, hear the word of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. 
the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. So most people would ask, uh, I would say almost every human believes they're, they're on some kind of a journey. Life to death and everything that's in between. But a large majority, believe it or not, at least 98% of the population of planet Earth are very religious and believe in God. I think only 2 to 4% of people on Earth at any one time are true atheists. In other words, they, do, they absolutely don't believe in God. Most people are, that say they're atheistic are actually agnostic. They're just not sure. But even that's a smaller percentage. The largest percentage are people that believe in some kind of God, some kind of fate, some kind of deity, some kind of higher power, whatever it is. So you're on this journey, and you know it's going to end, and you wonder, well, is there anything after this? Is there anything beyond? Sorry about that. So that's what this psalm is getting at. And it's interesting that in many, many places of the Bible, you, you get this hint that not only are we on a journey, but that that is somehow embedded in the very fabric of the Scripture from beginning to end. There's a beginning of creation. There's an end of paradise. There's a beginning a new beginning after the flood with Noah and his sons. There's a more focused new beginning with Abraham and the covenant he makes with Abraham and so on and so forth. It's remarkable. If you look at your scriptures, you see that this idea of journey, of pilgrimage, of restoration takes us all the way through the Bible, all the way till Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when the final consummation occurs and the new Jerusalem descends from God in heaven and comes and there's a new creation, new earth, and the people of God are gathered once again in God's immediate presence like they were at the beginning. But now in a recreated world, a better world if you can even imagine that. We're not going back to the garden. We're going to a city that looks like a garden. It's, it's truly remarkable. And the scope of that whole journey is on almost every page of your Bible. So we're going to look at three things. I think that this psalm in particular is taking the pilgrims, us, into this place. And these three things are there's a theme of restoration. And this is not the only place. Like I said, it's on every page, I think, of your Bible. The theme of restoration the necessity of reflection. In other words, God gave you a memory, at least most of you still have your memory. I know there's a few of us that are, our memories are starting to uh, disappear, or dissipate. But as long as you have a memory, it's there for a purpose. And God has this necessity of reflection where you are called to look back, think back, 
And then finally, the plan of redemption. We'll look at that because I think that's also in this psalm. So first of all, the theme of restoration. If you have your, your bulletin, look at it real quick and just uh, look at the way the verses are laid out here. And one of these days, I'm going to have uh, uh, Joanna help me to create the, the chiastic structure uh, that we can put up here on the board. I, I probably should have done it with this one, but maybe I'll do it next week. But anyway, the, the way these psalms are laid out on a piece of paper or more precisely on a scroll was so that when you opened up Psalm 121 in Hebrew and you read it from right to left and you look at it, at the very center, something catches your eye. That's a central place in a lot of these psalms. They're structured differently, but this one in particular is good. So if you look at your bulletin, look at that little phrase right after verse 3, we are glad. Just circle that, if not on your paper in your mind. We are glad. You see, the psalmist is going from top and bottom inward. He's making his way inward, even though it's being read this way. He's making his way into this central theme of joy, of restoration, of fulfillment, of gladness, a posture that he expects every believer to have rooted down in their life. And we're going to talk about joy because I think it's, it's misunderstood. But there's this theme. Look at verse 1 and verse 4. You can see these are kind of like bookends. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. You see those two phrases are identical. That's how you recognize the structure. And you see them. Restoration is a major theme in scripture the pilgrim journey the pilgrim journey is a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 the only reason that you and I are on a journey is because in Genesis chapter 3 the people of God broke their covenant with God and were cast out of the garden on the east side of the garden they were cast out and they had to live in the wilderness. And wilderness is another theme. So from that point, from Genesis 3 on, the reason there's a Bible in your hands today is because we're on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey. And it's not just one line. It's, it has many iterations, if you will. I just alluded to them a moment ago. There's Noah. There's a restarting of humanity. There's Abraham, a refining of humanity to bring forward the seed that will redeem the world, that will bring the whole plan of restoration and redemption together through the seed of Abraham, the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And then there's Moses, a complete new restoration from slavery through the wilderness to the land of promise to Canaan. They fail. So he brings kings to, to help them make the journey, continue the journey, journeys that the king was meant to go with them and fight and defend them. And they failed. And then there's another return, restoration from exile. The people are sent away to Babylon. God delivers them and brings them back. And at that point, he promises them a new king who will sit on the throne of David, a new day when the Spirit of God will be poured out over all the earth with 
no limits. It's truly remarkable. Adam, Noah, Abraham, you see this movement. And even within each one of those, you see small little restorations of people and places and things. All making their way. All making this journey. And we're on that journey too. Everyone in this room, you know you're on a journey. We just don't know really how to look at it. So what I'm telling you is, as believers, the journey is a journey of restoration. A journey of rebirth. A journey of new creation. That's what God had planned all along. And that's where we are today. And your friends and neighbors and family that are around you, they can relate to that. They can, you can say, how's your, how's your life going? What's the movement of your life? Well, the doctor said I have cancer. Okay? You go with that, them with that part through the journey, and maybe God heals them, maybe He doesn't. But in any case, restoration is in mind. Restoration is that we want to get well. We want to do better. We want to improve. We want to lose weight. Even if it means walking in the heat and sweating. Like, or, you know, we, we have this idea of movement. Everybody does. If you're static, if you're just still, you know that you'll drown. Or you know that the currents of this world will push you back. Because every, we know that we're moving against some sort of current. In Christian theology, that current is sin, and deprivation, and evil, and suffering, and darkness. That's what's pressing against us. We don't know how to answer those questions. A lot of people don't. I think Christianity does answer many of those questions. But nevertheless, we know that we're, there's effort in moving forward. So how do you do that? Well, you've got to have, this is why the necessity of reflection is here in the psalm. So you have these two uh, bookends, one and four, and in between, look at verse one. B, the second part of verse one th through the first part of two. Remember there were no, no numbers, no versification in the ancient text. This is all modern stuff. So if you were looking at Psalm 126, it would have just been written out on a piece of paper without notations or anything like that. Look at this, what he says. We were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues shout for joy. Now look down at 4b. This is the next section. Remember, we're working from the outside uh, in, so to speak. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. The psalmist, and not just the psalmist, but I think all of uh, Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, almost every page, when God is talking to His people, He will say something like this, Remember, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of, of, of Egypt. I rescued you with a strong arm, and I brought you here, there, whatever, to this land. And then after the exile... The prophet said, no longer will you say, I am the Lord. The Lord is the one who brought us out of Egypt, but the Lord who brought us out of Babylon, out of exile, back. You see, there's these cycles of, 
of restoration and of redemption. And throughout the scripture, you almost can't find a page on scripture where God is not calling his people to remember. Remember, use the memory that God has given you. And remember, remember what? Remember his gospel. Remember him. Remember the promises he made. Remember his covenant. Remember what he has done for us in our lives. It's, it's just remarkable. So the psalmist is pointing us in these couple of verses, one and two and four, second half of four and five, of an awakening, an awareness that should be there in the people of God. It's like sometimes we forget, sometimes we fall asleep, we get distracted, life happens, and you, you're in a fog. And then you come to church. Why do you think he has us coming to church every seven days? Because that's about how long it takes for us to forget. In fact, a lot of us forget sooner than that. So Friday night, we're ready to go. I got to find something. I got to listen to a sermon. I got to hear. I call my pastor. I got to text him. Help. I'm texting Dawson. Help. He's texting Jeff. Help. Jeff's texting me. Help. But in the believers, there's to be in all of us an awakening, an awareness. It's like all of a sudden you come out of a dream and you see your dreams have come true. Your dreams have come true. It's like a burst of rain, this idea of streams in the Negev. The, the Negev was the, the deep desert in, in the southern part of uh, Palestine, this, this dry, brittle, we can identify it with it here. It's dry and brittle, and boy, when the rain comes, everything just pops. The grass sprouts up quickly, the, the, the flowers, the bushes turn green really fast, put out their flowers, because in a week, it's going to be deadly dry again. You know, we lived in Florida for six years while I was in seminary, three years in seminary, three years pastoring a little church down there. And in El Paso, when it rains, and you all know this, you know, it can pour rain and you step outside your house, or better yet, if you maybe you go out into the, uh, to the uh, desert, take a walk, it smells, what, fresh, crisp, alive. The air is cool. It, there's something about the desert that you don't experience anywhere else when it rains. It's really unique. The smell of creosote and the rain that hits that creosote is like nothing. If we could bottle it, we could pay off our building. Wonderful. Amazing. I lived in Florida for six years, and when it would rain, we would all say, what's that smell? Because everything over there is rotten. The ground is rotten. It's all wet all the time. There's, there's this loamy smell, and when it rains, it doesn't help things. It just makes it more loamy. Sulfur smell, because you're, it's, it's, there's a lot of decay. I'm not saying that that's bad. It's part of ecology and life and all the wilderness and stuff. But it's not the same. You don't smell that freshness. It, it, when it rains in Florida, you're muggy, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're sticky. When it rains here, you pull off your shirt and the breeze comes and you're refreshed. Yes? Am I the only one? Where do you all live anyway? Everybody's here from Florida. The psalmist is reflecting on this past distress. And then he gets a whiff. 
of that bursting of rain, that waking, like you awake from a dream and, and the dream is not fading away like, a, uh, like they often do, like smoke and you're grasping, wondering where did that go, what was that dream? No, it's right there, it's crystal clear, it's more reality than what reality is. And that's what the psalmist is trying to get across. That's what they were singing and chanting to one another. We're in a dream. And our dream is coming true. We're on a pilgrimage. We're going to, the, to Jerusalem in their case. We are making our journey to the new Jerusalem. And in that Jerusalem is a throne. And on that throne is the one we only have seen in our dreams. But now it'll be a reality, crystal clear. You'll be able to look right into His eyes and He into yours. And the reality of that restoration will begin to become real for you. And hopefully on the journey now, it becomes a little more real for you. There's a catharsis, an explosion in the psalmist's Life, the pilgrims' lives, where they, they began to think about this, this great restoration, and they laugh and they sing for shouts of joy and they praise the Lord even before they've gotten there. Much like what we do on Sunday morning, we sing these beautiful songs that Marcos and Paulette pick for us, and then we, you, you know, they just sort of go by. But if you stop and think about what we're actually singing, behold the wondrous mystery. Christ on a tree for you. A new Jerusalem away. All of these beautiful things that we sing and say in our confessions. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. We're remembering. We're reflecting on what God has done. And, I would say, is doing. You see, the point of reflection is not to live in the past. What is the point of reflection? to bring the past into your present and give you strength to reach and hold on to the future. And the future can be greasy, slippery. I know when I was a kid, Hal's back here, Hal Staley, my friend from high school, you remember we used to change our oil, Hal, in the car? You know, there weren't places to change your oil. And so we had to do that ourselves. One of the fun things we would do is we would put STP in our oil. Do any of you know what STP is? Okay. A few of you do. This side knows. This side. We'll pray for you. <laughs> STP was a super slippery. I don't know. They still make it. Put it in the engine with your oil. It was supposed to grease the engine up, really make it slick. And we would take STP and we would put it on our fingers. This is when we were in high school, kind of knuckleheads, you know. We'd get a screwdriver. Did you ever do that? And you'd uh, pass it around, see who could hold the screwdriver with STP. Nobody could ever do it. It's slippery. Just slip away. That's like the future. The future is slippery. The past is slippery. Our memories are not always that good. Or our memories start to be bent by our prejudices and our biases and our wanting to self-justify. And so we recreate those memories. They're not always that accurate. But restoration is unexpected, and yet at the same time, it's undeniable. And so here as we make our way to the center, look at these two verses, 2b, second part of verse 2, and 3a, the, the, this little section. 
The Lord has done great things for them. The nations, in other words, there's this idea that people out there, the nations that had oppressed the people of God are now stepping back and looking and saying, wow, the Lord has done great things for them. And then the pilgrim echoes that. Almost like he's waking up, like I said, from a dream. He's saying, wow, the Lord has done great things for us. Or maybe they're more affirming and they say the Lord has done great things for us. Whichever way it is, we don't know. They didn't use exclamation and question mark stuff. It was just, we don't know. But it could have been both. Wow, the Lord has done great things for us. Yeah, He has done great things for us. You see, the beauty of Scripture, He has done great things because reflection will take you there. Reflection will affirm you, will affirm the faith you have, not deconstruct it. The church is deconstructing right now at a rate in the United States that has never been known before, ever. It's historic, and scholars are writing about it. I've been listening to podcasts about it, and some of, some of our guys at the Gospel Coalition have uh, started studying it. Why people, there's 50 50 million, is that right, Dawson? Something like 50 million people in the United States who used to go to church that don't go anymore. And if you ask them why, there's a list of reasons, but they're, they're, they're called de-churched people. And a rather large percentage of those de-churched 50 million people, something like 19 or 20 million, when they are... Uh, polled when they're interviewed said I would go back to church if and then they have lists of reasons okay think about this these are people that either never knew the gospel or they have forgotten it yes they've forgotten it because if you reflect if you really think about what God has done for you it will become strength it will become uh, it will be a, like a vantage point that most people are desperate to have. A place where you can go and look back and actually see something factual, not distorted. Or that you're able to look over. Maybe you're looking back, but you're also looking over from a vantage point. That reflection, the psalmist says, is extremely powerful. The shortest sermon in the Bible, I think, and maybe one of the best, was by a, a beggar who was blind. Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers and all the political Sanhedrin people, they got just irate. So they bring this blind man in and they start to hammer away at him and hammer away at him and and asking him very difficult questions, and he just answers them simply, yeah, he put mud on my eyes, and I can see. What did he do? Well, he did this. And so, well, do you think that they're asking this guy who's uneducated, this, this poor beggar, who knows nothing, he's been bor- born blind, do you think he's a Messiah? Do you really think Jesus is a Messiah? And listen to this, the shortest sermon, the best sermon. I don't know. <laughs> All I do know is I was blind, And now I, what? I see. I was blind, but now I see. The power of reflection 
took this man from wherever he was, by the pool of Bethesda, or whatever, wherever he was, in John chapter 9, and it took him into eternity and, and, and with his Lord Jesus today. Imagine that. The power of reflection. I don't know, but I do know this. I was blind, now I see. If that's not part of the fabric, the DNA of your life, you're going to live a miserable, miserable life. How come we, you know, we celebrate communion every Sunday at Christ the King? And some, some people would ask, you know, well, don't you, doesn't it just become rote? Doesn't it, you know, you do it every week, you get used to it. A lot of denominations use that as an excuse not to do communion every week. And the answer to that is, well, you don't treat the offering that way. You wouldn't think of leaving off the offering every Sunday, pumping people for money every Sunday, which, you know, we don't do here. By the way, the boxes back there have been pretty empty, so... Yeah, we are running a little bit of a deficit, but, you know, God is good. He's been faithful to us. Remember. Remember. Communion. Listen to this. As often as you eat this bread, and this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, now, present, You proclaim the Lord's death past until He comes in the future. Do you see it? We're called to the table, not just simply to remember. There's much more that goes on. This is not a Presbyterian church. It is not a memorial. It is a real presence of Christ dynamically by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, mixed with our faith. But in that moment, we come, we take, we eat, We're reflecting back on the past, the death of our Lord, His resurrection, the the, the power of His ascension to the throne of God, and the future until He comes. He promised He was coming. I don't know when. Maybe a million years. Fine by me. But when He comes, then your dreams come true. Then, the the Negev, the desert, will be blooming. That beautiful smell is there all the time. In fact, it gets more intense. It doesn't diminish. There's no degradation. There's only blossoming and blooming and glory. The apostles said glory upon glory upon glory. Something you can't possibly Imagine. And then the center. I told you to mark it. We are glad or we are joyful or merry. Uh, You know, there's a lot of different ways you could translate this word, but it's a word of, of just celebration, restoration, reflection, and celebration. That's why we call the Lord's table a celebration, a Eucharist. It's, it's a time of celebrating. You can come to the table and be weary and tired and, and depressed even and, and, and burdened. And the burdens may not go away when you come to the table. I don't know. But it's there for that purpose to bring your focus 
back to Jesus Christ, back to the Lord. Not your performance, not your worthiness, not the, the, the de- debilitating sin that so easily besets us. Yeah, you'll remember your sin, but you're, you're bringing it to Him because you want Him to do something with it that you can't do. There's power in that, my friends. I'm telling you. Cynicism, Tim Keller says, cynicism is the worst sin that a Christian can have. And I'm, I'm somewhat cynical. My boys, my sons, they're, one's going to turn 40th year and the elder one is 42 or 43, I don't know, something like that. And they're the most cynical I've ever imagined. You know, they're Gen, what, Gen X or something? like. Is that right, Gen X? Is that right? And then there's the millennials. There's millennials here. Even more cynical. The more stuff we have, the more cynical we get. The more prosperity, the more cynical. The more food you have on the table, more cynical. What is going on? Cynicism. Hopelessness. Despair. Suicide rates going crazy in the United States. They rob us. They rob Christians even of any sense of joy and happiness and, and, and okay, you're okay. How can that be? I think the psalm is telling us it's possible for you and I to forget the gospel, to forget Jerusalem, to forget the temple, forget the God who is there, present in that temple, calling you back to him. Are you with me? We forget. We get distracted. We forget our past captivity. That's why in Alcoholics Anonymous, they, you never say you're not an alcoholic. You always are called to remember, I'm an alcoholic. Even though I'm not drinking, I'm an alcoholic. Same with uh, Narcotics Anonymous, any of the addictions. They're there. They're present. You don't ever want to forget the captivity that was there, the power and the destructive power that those kinds of things have on you. Whatever the addiction is, whatever the, the sin, that sense of hopelessness, of desperation that you were freed from, that moment of freedom when God saved you, as you go on, there's this thing Steve Childers used to tell us in school that there's this thing called redemption and lift. People come to Jesus broken. They need to be mended, empty. They need to be filled, uh, guilty. They need to be pardoned. You see, we come and we get that and there's this flush, this burst, like a, like a shower in the desert, like rainfall, like waking up from a dream and seeing your dreams come true. That, that all that reality is there. Redemption. Lift. Then you go and you get involved in the church, start hanging around with a bunch of Christians. God help us. We get lifted out of that past and we forget that our Savior lifted is the one who came. He got dirty to come in there and lift you. He didn't get a, he didn't get a pair of tweezers and go down there and pick you up out of the gutter. He went in the gutter to get you and he got filthy in doing it. And you've got to remember that or you'll forget. When you come to the Lord's table, you're called to remember that. 
And then to look at your sin, look at it right in the eye, kiss the demon on the lips, and say, no. Because I remember. I know my Redeemer. I know He lives. You see, this is the point. Joy is not a requirement. This is what I want you to, not to misunderstand. I think a lot of people think that Christians are supposed to be happy and joyful and merry and hopping around and dancing on one foot. Good luck with that. Uh, that's not the Christian life. Christian life is full, maybe more, of lament and depression and sorrow and grief and pain. Probably the majority. But underneath it, what is going to carry you? What's going to float your boat so that you don't sink? It's going to be the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Eugene Peterson said in his little book, uh, uh, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is basically a, a... a study of these 15 psalms, says this, Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It's not a requirement. It's a consequence. The more you reflect on the restoration that has been provided for you, that power, Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. That strength is what is undergirding you, not your willpower. And for God's sake, folks, not your circumstances. Oh, if I just had a little more money, if my wife was a little bit uh, more attentive, if my husband was going to the gym and working out and said he's a fat slob, you know, all this stuff. I mean, not that Marty V would ever say that to me, but you, you know what I'm saying, Right? Your, your, your focus is changing. Powerful. It's a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. You see, joy is going to be a natural um, expression of your life with God, even and especially when you're depressed and suffering and hurting and doubting and perhaps in fear. I don't know. what All all the things that happen to a human being, there's got to be something that you can rest your feet on. What in the world is that going to be? It's that reflection of your restoration, thinking about what, what He has done for you, taking time, And just reflecting back, I was blind, but now I see. What do you see? Him. I see Him, not me. I don't want to see me. Well, this creates a lot of tension. And I think Christianity is a religion of tension. We live in this already, not yet, this period of continuation. Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom. We live in this period of continuation until he comes again, this consummation that we pray for. And it's during that continuation, during that time where we feel tense. You read the news, you look at the paper, or no more newspapers, you look at your iPad, whatever you do. You're, you're, you're constantly bombarded with information that is fearful and negative and controversial and isn't ever going to get right. Reflect. 
reflection. So how you understand it, let me finish with this. I think I need to move quickly here. How you look at verse 6, how you picture that. This is a promise. Look at it. A person goes out, one person goes out weeping, bearing seeds for sowing. You see, your journey includes seeds of sowing. You're, you're trying to sow your life, and you're trying to reap, and you know, that, all that. That's what life is. Sowing, reaping, whatever. But they shall come out. So you're sowing in tears. That's the part of the tension. The sorrow. Everything's dry. Everything's parched. You're sowing the seeds, and you're thinking, what's nothing's going to get better. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing positive. But that person shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves or the harvest with them. You see, the period of tension is going to last, but there is an end when a harvest will come. That's the promise to you. How do you understand that? Well, if you just put it on you, it's despair. Because, man, my life doesn't look like that right now. I have the seeds, but there's lots of dry ground. It's parched. I don't know. But you put those words on the lips of Jesus Christ, and what do you see? Now what do you see? He came to Jerusalem, and he looked down at the city, and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Do you see this? They forgot and he was the one who looked over his people, his city, his temple, his world, and wept. He wept over it. And he carried that weeping with him down into that city of Jerusalem where he was beaten and tortured and tried in a kangaroo court and nailed to a cross and cried. He, he, he groaned his last breath on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one that went out with tears. But he promised to come and bring the harvest. What, what harvest? That's what you are supposed to reflect on. What harvest? It's you. Me. Those tears were spent on you. That life was spent on you. That blood was spent on you. The aroma of his life was like a burst of, of rain in the desert that the world could smell that beauty. God smelled the aroma of that offering. And God said, I'm satisfied. I love my people. Why? because my son loves those people. And I love those people, so I will send my son to those people. Truly remarkable. Sinclair Ferguson says this, He had gone forth weeping to Jerusalem, bearing with him the seed of his own life, 
that he would plant into the death, into death, into the ground, in the soil of Mount Calvary. And within weeks, he would, as it were, come home rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Within weeks. Acts chapter 2, 3 to 5,000 people. And here, 2,000 years later, Christ the King. Amen. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. You planted Your Son into the ground. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it just dies alone. It's got to be planted. It's got to die. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so we thank You, Father, that we can count ourselves among those blessed, those that are making this journey not in hopelessness or de despair or cynicism, but in joy and rejoicing. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O Lord, according to your grace. Amen.